recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris of Saturdays. Now I have an echo. Ryan, maybe you should mute yourself. I'm going to see if it persists. Hello? No, we have an echo. I, I don't know why. All right, we can try everyone calling back in, or we can just roll with it, and we'll get on. Did you mute, your, did, did you mute yourself? Oh, yes, I was muted for about 10 or 12 seconds after you suggested I mute. Well, I don't hear the echo now. Yes, I do. How the heck do we have an echo? Could be something related to talk show. It it must be because it's it's not. I mean, I do this program the same exact way all the time. Right? Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Tegenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May twenty fifth, two thousand and fifteen. I've been under the weather, and and today the onus of the pro the onus of the program is on Sword Brethren. We're going to present two papers. What what? What Does America Really Want? by Joseph Goebbels and an article by Pat Buchanan, a more recent article, Did Hitler Want War?, which was written by him in September of 2009. The point of the articles is, once again, to show that it was not Germany, which was the bellicose party, in, in the days preliminary to the Second World War, it was certainly America, and especially, especially the, the world Jewish community, which was bellicose against Germany, and which was the catalyst and cause of the war. Well, if you ask any American today on the street, anybody who, you know, as a pulse, at least, and went to either public school or, for that matter, private or charter school. And, in fact, most homeschooled people, just ask any American about World War II, and they'll say, you know, the Germans wanted to take over the world, conquer the world. The whole world would have been enslaved. And maybe they, if, if they're a bit more savvy and they, they studied history thoroughly in the colleges or at least in high school, they might have seen Why We Fight by Frank Capra and, you know, the standard, today we rule Germany, tomorrow the world. And having listened to a large number, probably 40-50% of Hitler's speeches, I've never seen a transcript, and I've never heard the words in German, you know, today we rule Germany, tomorrow the world. I've, I've never heard that uttered. It, it was never in any German slogan, and I think if they had footage of Hitler shouting that, they would provide it. And, and sometimes the History Channel, they provide false subtitles. You know, they have Hitler talking about wiping out the Jews and conquering the world, but those words aren't coming out of his mouth. He's not even saying anything remotely similar to that. But conventional wisdom is that America is unbelievably good, and Germany was unbelievably evil, and good triumphed over evil. Yet the the facts, a close examination of the facts with an open mind, just doesn't bear that theory out. It doesn't hold water. You know, as they say, that dog won't hunt, that crow doesn't caw. If we, when we when we get into the document, we're going to see that very vividly. The Germans were not embarking on some multi-year propaganda campaign to pump their people up for a war with America or a war with anybody. But America, they were conducting probably the most comprehensive, vicious, ruthless campaign of hatred 
and agitation propaganda that the world has ever seen. It's, it's without precedent in history. Everything in American media was organized against Germany, against fascism, against, quote, authoritarian tyrannies. Everything was for the sole purpose of getting the American people to support an eventual war with National Socialist Germany. And the Germans did not strike back tit for tat. They were surprisingly silent. They showed remarkable restraint until finally Goebbels had enough in 1939. And I, I think we've seen the same thing again and again in history, that one side conducts itself in a manner, you know, hearkening back to the old era of night, nightly chivalry, you know, the, the Southern Army, the Army of um, Northern Virginia under Lee, when they were marching into the north in Pennsylvania. They didn't burn everything to the ground. And, in fact, if they had, that might have cost Lincoln the upcoming election. If they had done to Pennsylvania what Sherman's army was going to do to Georgia and South Carolina, my word, the, the war would have been over then. The North would have sought peace, but they were above that. They weren't going to lower themselves to such conduct. And the Boers, when they fought the British, gave full quarter, but the British didn't return the favor. So it seems time and time again in war, the side that is truly good conducts itself in a in a mostly decent fashion. There there may be a, a few misdeeds, but they're isolated and they're punished. And the other side just takes the gloves off. They attack civilians. They attack women and children. They bayonet men trying to surrender. They burn entire villages and cities to the ground. They conduct aerial bombing against cities filled with refugees. And then when they win the war, they write the history books. And we only hear their version of events. Well, well that's absolutely true. And, and there is this this echo is really annoying me. I'm I'm sorry. That, that's absolutely true. And and there there's all sorts that there is all sorts of evidence that that Germany fully complied with with, with the established rules of war in in the execution of World War II. And all of the accusations made against Germany, contra, contrary to that have been proven to be false, that none of them stand. You, you always have isolated incidents uh, of cruelty or, or of um, law-breaking, um, treaty-breaking in this case, international treaties, international law. You always have isolated incidents of that in, in every war. Right. But, so, but nothing that Germany, Germany did ever violated the, um, the, the the standard conventions and agreements that, that were in full, full force and effect at the time. It's the Soviets who, who had not signed the convention, and, and the Soviets were actually um, in the battlefield by far, absolutely barbaric and cruel. And, and the American bombing of civilian centers and the British bombing of civilian centers, to the extent and for the reasons which they did it, it's... Um, that that they they should be prosecuted. That they America and Britain both their leadership should have been prosecuted. Well, you know the the German U boat victors. They're the victors. The German U boat commanders, when they were told you waged unrestricted submarine warfare against merchant shipping, they pointed out you did the same thing in the Pacific to the Japanese merchant fleet. And incidentally, it worked wonders. The Japanese were on starvation rations by 1945. Their entire industry was collapsing because no raw materials were making it into Japan. And something like 90% of the Japanese merchant fleet was at the bottom of the Pacific. 
and the allies at Nuremberg said that's irrelevant. We're not, that, that, that's not pertinent to the case. You can't cite that. You can't use that in your defense. Well, the only difference was the Allies won. They're not going to put themselves on trial, and they can't let the Germans say you've done the same thing, or else they'd have to admit they're criminals too, or they'd have to let the Germans off. It, it's uh, I still have this echo, and I have all all of my devices are muted except for this microphone. Right? I have no idea where this echo could be coming from. It, it's it's fully apparent that the victors right the war, and and that the the Jews were the victors. Victors in, in World War Two, just like the Jews were the victors in World War One. The version of history that we have um, for, the, for the last two hundred years, all of our events, it, it is basically the version which has Jewish approbation. Right. So our society today looks at its history through a Jewish lens. We have Jews writing our history books, writing our Bible commentaries and pronouncing their insolent judgment upon our civilization and our values. And now they're trying to destroy our values and replace them with their values. And they've done that to the greatest extent. Uh, I mean, it's real close. When you, when, when you see men and donkeys walking down the aisle and being pronounced man and wife, you'll know the Jews have finally achieved their objective. Right. However, the, the sad part is that that is what will have to happen before most white Christians even realize what's going on, because they simply refuse to pay attention. You know, in the early and late 1920s in Germany, Germany was the cesspool of the world. They, they pioneered homosexual relationships. They had sex change operations. The first sex change surgeries were performed in Berlin in the late 1920s. They had, I think, over 100,000 prostitutes working in Berlin alone in 1929, and it was a nation without hope. In 1932, just one year before Hitler rose to power, there were almost 300,000 suicides in Germany, a nation of only about 65 million people, compared with America, which had around 100 million people. In that year in America, there were about 28,000 suicides. And Hitler said that those individuals were victims of the Jewish Weimar government that ruined them economically and that stole their hope for the future and caused them to commit suicide. They, they despaired so much they were pushed over the edge. Well, today in America, there's no such thing as a conservative anymore. There hasn't been a conservative for many years. Many years. Most conservatives have an attitude that is libertarian as the it's like the, as the Jews like to call it, <laughs> libertarianism is basically a political philosophy that makes the world safe for Jew, Jewish perversion. Well, and most people that feel that they're conservative are really libertarian, and, and libertarianism is, it just just gives the Jews license to be perverts. Well, more than a point, a conservative is someone who wants to preserve the status quo and the existing order. But as I said the two, in 2003, I was having a conversation with a teacher. I said the existing order is disgusting, and not only must it not be preserved, it must be overthrown and torn down, and a new order must be built up. And she essentially agreed with that and said that that's why she didn't identify as a conservative, because there's nothing left to conserve. And the same thing, the, the Council of Conservative Citizens, one of their board members he um, half-jokingly said that they should change their name to the Council of Revolutionary Citizens because there's nothing, there's nothing left to conserve in this society. 
to identify as a conservative. What do we conserve? The existing order is sick. I don't want to conserve gay marriage and open borders. I want to tear that down and throw it away. No, no doubt. I think the, the conservative era basically died with the 50s and 60s. Well, well, America certainly died with the 50s and 60s, yes. There's no doubt. The, the social revolutions and, and, and the, even the cultural revolution of the 1950s, and, and it went back to the 20s. The, the cultural revolution of the 20s tore apart the, the moral fabric of America. And, and Clifton Emmerheiser likes to say that when the Depression hit, skirts, the, the, the skirt lengths dropped, and women gained their morality, but that was only temporary. But with the economic rewards of the 1950s that we reap for slaughtering our German brethren, immorality was back in vogue. Absolutely. And you know... When people talk about when did World War II start and the conventional wisdom is, oh, Germany invaded Poland or Americans will say when the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor. But really, you know, truth be told, World War II began on 30 January 1933 when Hitler and the NSDAP rose to power and they made it clear no more shall international Jewry be allowed to plunder our Volk, loot this nation, pillage this nation and pollute and contaminate our culture and our blood. As soon as Hitler said the moneylenders are getting chased out of the temple, war was inevitable. The war began. No doubt. Hitler knew, um, Mein Kampf, page 124, the struggle against international finance capital and the loan capital has become one of the most important points in the program on, on which the German nation has based its fight for its economic freedom and independence. He, he knew who was behind it. He, he knew that the internationalists, the bankers, and, and, and were behind Marxism. He knew that the dichotomy between capitalism and Marxism was what was created by the Jews. And he also knew that the Jews were responsible for, for all of the Weimar decadence. Well, when you respond against the... the um, the Jews in, in, in any of those areas, the Jews cry anti-Semitism as, as if you're, you're, you're um, against their race or as if you're against their religion. It, it really, the Jews never face the issues of the, 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 that really destroy nations, which are Jewish decadence, and Jewish usury. So, right. so those are the those, those are the things that Jews do that really destroy nations. But if they don't hold sway over a large, powerful nation, all they can do is moan and perhaps plot against you covertly and try and bring down your government. If they hold sway over a large, powerful nation, and some nation in Europe, say Germany, says no more usury, no more pornography, the Jews just sigh, oy vey, and then they emigrate, they come to the United States, join their cousins and their brothers already here, and they bring the whole might of the U.S. crashing down on Germany. Well, well right, and I saw 
a perfect example of that in in the news last week and 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 I'm looking I'm I'm looking I'm hoping to find the page now. I don't know if I have it here or not. I know I saved it. It's just a matter of where. The this um the the ADL is complaining about um anti Semitism blossoming in several nations overseas. In, in fact, here it is now. The headline is, um, U- U.S. study shows global increase in anti-Semitism and in Shoah denial. This is a headline from the Times of Israel on May 21st. And, and at the bottom paragraph of the article, it says, Abraham Fox, the national director of the Anti-Defamation League said the appointment of Foreman as anti-Semitism envoy within the U.S. government shows that the U.S. resolve to fight anti-Semitism is serious and ongoing. The ADL is confident Foreman will play an important role in ensuring that the significant political will and diplomatic resources of the U.S. are brought to bear to urge foreign governments to take action against anti-Semitism. Now, is, this, is this guy that they've appointed, is he a, an, an NGO for some non-governmental organization, or is this a State Department official? Well, well he, he's being appointed to, the, to a State Department capacity, to a State Department office. It, it's, it's the Jews doing what you just said. They're using the, the power of the United States government to crush opposition to Jews everywhere. And they would have us believe, you know, the man on the street would say, oh, this is a good thing, hatred's bad, it's the job of the United States to send people abroad and make them like Jews. I wonder, is there going to be an envoy to South Africa to curtail the anti-Afrikaner, the anti-white violence? Well, I don't think any of us need to wonder. We know the answer. No, because South Africans aren't running the American government. All right. Well, let's take a look at Americans in the 1930s, shall we? And this article is from Calvin EDU, the background states. This article is dated 21 January 1939 and is part of a major propaganda campaign against the United States. And as an aside, I would say that if this is indeed part of a major propaganda campaign against the United States, it's the start of a major propaganda campaign against the United States because Germany was surprisingly silent in the face of vehement, disgusting slanders, ruthless defamation, essentially, that took took part from the American media in this era. They, they They didn't say a word. They didn't utter a peep. The Jews who dominated America slandered Germany repeatedly. They insulted and ridiculed Hitler with all the standard slurs. And the Germans didn't respond. There was no tit-for-tat, you poke me, we poke you. This is basically the first time Germany's done anything. To continue, this was in part the result of negative American reaction to the anti-Jewish pogrom of November 1938. President Roosevelt had criticized Germany's policy explicitly. Goebbels is unhappy with American reactions to National Socialism and suggests the Americans ought to stop criticizing Germany. It was first published in the Volkischer Beobachter, then in many other newspapers. The source, 
was will eigentlich Amerika? Die Zeit ohne Beispiel in Munich, 1941, page 24 to 30. And again, Roosevelt didn't merely explicitly criticize German policy. He was undermining Germany at every opportunity. We've already shown that with the Pataki Papers. He was interfering with Germany's ability to conduct diplomacy with her neighbors. He was incredibly provocative. In fact, I think in 1938 and 39, Roosevelt would have been happy if somehow America could have gained a Casas Belli against Germany to start a war right then and there. Would you tend to agree, Bill? I mean, you don't think that that's just a baseless claim I'm making, do you? Well, well no, absolutely. But there's no doubt. <laughs> what Does America Really Want? by Joseph Goebbels. The American press has the noble right to complain about Europe. It makes vigorous use of this right, particularly when Germany is involved. National Socialist Germany is a thorn in its eye. The Third Reich has been the target of its mockery, hatred, lies, and slander since 30 January 1933, especially from that part controlled by the Jews. The American press takes particular pleasure in criticizing Germany on the grounds of humanitarianism, civilization, human rights, and culture. It has every right to do so. Its humanity is shown in most vivid form by lynchings. Its civilization is shown in economic and political scandals that stink to high heaven. Its human rights are displayed by 11 or 12 million unemployed who apparently choose to be so. And its culture exists only because it is always borrowing from the older European nations. Such a nation is certainly justified in sneering at ancient Europe, whose nations and peoples looked back on centuries, even millennia, of cultural achievement, long before America was even discovered. And as an aside, if America is a champion of human rights in the 30s, then why would America be in lockstep with the French and the British who you know, ruled over basically combined probably 40% of the world's surface and 50% of the world's population? The French and British had the largest colonial empires at that time. So, so much for freedom and civilization. Well, right. The American press replies to our complaints by saying that it has nothing against Germany only against National Socialism. This is a poor excuse. National Socialism today is Germany's guiding political idea and worldview. The entire German nation affirms it. To criticize National Socialism today, therefore, means to criticize the entire German people. And we see this again when they say we have no problem with the Iranians, the Iranian people, it's the Iranian government and the Iranian regime we despise. The American media shouts that day and night, trying to build a case for war against Iran. But of course, if the military does go into Iran, millions will die on both sides, many American servicemen, because Iran's not a pushover, it won't be a cakewalk, and they'll kill however many Iranians they have to. And then the deprivations of war, starvation, hunger, disease, that'll kill many more. It'll be just like Iraq. And all the while, they'll be saying, we only have an issue with the Iranian government. We're here to help the people. Just like the embargo on Cuba, it's because they disagree with the Cuban government. It has nothing to do with the Cuban people, and it's just an unintended, unfortunate consequence, a side effect that, that they didn't foresee, that the Cuban people would be um, suffering through lack of food, lack of medicine, lack of spare parts for their vehicles and their aircraft. That's just unfortunate. The disagreement, though, is with the Cuban government, not the Cuban people. 
it, it happens time and time again. They say we disagree with the government, we don't want to hurt the people, and then ultimately the people suffer. Well, well, I don't know how much empathy I would have for Cuban people, to be honest with you. Right. But, but um, it, it's, it, it's just an example, right? Right, it's an example. They say the disagreements with the government, so we'll apply sanctions that will grind the nation in the dust and bring the people, you know, into submission. Well, well, well that's, that, that's an anti-democratic principle. Right, because a democratic principle would be free and open trade. The, the better example is South Africa, right? Oh, absolutely. South Africa is a fine example. But there, I think they actually said that they didn't like the South African people either because the South Africans were racist. And at the time, it was very difficult for South Africans to immigrate here. And today, I think it was um, Senator Brownback. He was a presidential candidate. Someone asked him if he would be in favor of granting asylum status to white South Africans because of the violence in their nation. And he said explicitly, and this is an almost direct quote, we do not need them, nor do we need their racism in this nation. They won't get along in our diverse society. So he said he was in favor of prohibiting them from coming to this country, even given all the violence in South Africa. Another clearer example would probably be that of George Hader, who, who was the elected president of Austria, I believe. And they pressured the government and pressured him into stepping down. Kurt Waldheim is another one. They pressured the government and pressured him into stepping down. Because America and the Jews in America did not like those men. That they were um, anti-Semites or, or Kurt Waldheim. I think he served as Secretary General to the United Nations, and, and that wasn't a problem. But when he became the, the Prime Minister or President or, or whatever, however it is that they had their government set up, I honestly don't remember, uh, of Austria, that he was a problem, and they forced his resignation, and they used political pressure to do it. That that's an that's a violation of democratic principles. It, it shows you how hip, hypocritical world Jewry is. Right. Well, Western democracy is it's empty. It's just a facade. And if you look behind the facade and behind all the smoke and mirrors, you see that it's just an ugly, festering, hook-nosed Jew. Well, well, right, but the sad part is that even though these examples lie open for, for anybody with a, a 75 IQ to see, the average American never sees it. And, and these things are things that have been in the news. Well, the, the great tragedy is Americans consider themselves the freest people in the world, but we're, we're fairly heavily taxed. Homeschool freedom is severely limited in many states. Firearms freedoms are limited. Freedom of movement and travel. There are random checkpoints all throughout the country. We're not really secure in our persons, properties, papers, and effects. The Bill of Rights has essentially been shredded, in, or at least interpreted in the meaninglessness. But we still believe we're the, the freest people in the world. We well, well the, my name. point is that the average American, no matter how smart he thinks he is, is basically a bought and paid for stooge. Right. He, he's bought and paid for with money which the Jews have printed freely and with entertainments that elevate every foul element of society. Well, he's not looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. He's looking at the world through 
glasses that are coated with Jewish filth. He sees history through the Jewish lens, so he can never gain a proper worldview. Okay. Well, well, it can be overcome, then. Anybody who could actually pick up a book and read and, and, and examine and, and reflect upon what's going on in the world should be able to see the evils with, with this um, Jewish-run society which we live in. That would take time away from football, beer, and orgies. That's the point. That's the point. Back to Goebbels. It will not do to say that National Socialism is a dictatorship and that there are still many in Germany who inwardly at least reject it. That simply is not the case. It is a fantasy that exists only in the minds of democratic politicians and journalists, but has nothing to do with the facts. There is no doubt about it. The public campaign against Germany is a conscious and international provocation aimed at the German Reich and the German people. And if I'm not mistaken, they were calling for boycotts of Germany within about five months of Hitler coming to power. I think it was March 24, 1933, the British Daily Express. Judea declares war on Germany. And you know something? They have archive issues, the Daily Express, of all of their newspapers ever printed from the 1900s onward. They have images, too, thumbnail previews. You can go there and buy the, the paper for about 20 pounds sterling, and they show you a thumbnail preview of what the front page looks like for the issue you want. They have one for the 23rd of March. They have one for the 25th. But for the 24th, it says preview not available, you know, paper not available. So I emailed them and said, I'm interested in buying an archive issue of your newspaper. They said, oh, certainly, we'd be glad to help you. That'll be on 20 pounds sterling. Which issue did you have in mind? And I said, I would like the March 24, 1933 issue, and they never responded. Well, well I would expect them not to respond to that. But it, it's, it's somewhat conspicuous, though, isn't it, that they have a preview thumbnail for every paper from 1933, except March 24, 1933, it says not available. And the Jews maintain that there was no paper printed that day, and it's just an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that Judea declared war on Germany. They're just hoping no one calls them on it. They're hoping that nobody out there has an original copy. Right. To continue, generally, it does not make any difference to us. We Germans do not depend on the love or grace of other nations. We live from our own national strength. The time is long past when Germany expected its salvation from abroad. Such international help was always lacking when it was most needed during the post-war period. It appeared only when international money and stock capital believed that it could earn vast profits that could be earned nowhere else by helping Germany. And the Jews, they don't live on any national strength because they have no strength. The Germans said it best when they declared that the Jew can only survive as long as his misguided hosts are willing to carry him on their backs. Well, as long as Americans believe that he's God's chosen people. Right. Well, look at Israel. Look at their budget. I would assume the United States or rich Jews in America who are donating to Israel privately, combined with what the United States sends and the loans we give them and then immediately forgive a year or two later, we're probably paying 90% of their entire budget and almost the whole of their military budget. We've propped up that nation and we've made enemies 
and the entire region in the process. But remember, they're the only democracy in the region, and they're our only ally in the region. And they're neither. But, well, that's all propaganda, right? They're, they're, right. Their history is old as Kleinland, is what they are. Right. And they're perverters of history. Well, if you were conducting a multi-century, multi-millennia scam, an organized crime cartel that operates on a multi-generational basis, wouldn't you want to conceal your people's involvement in this conspiracy? From generation to generation, you have to rewrite history and keep certain things out of the public view. Well, well, absolutely. I did a program on the Wicked Black Gentry two weeks ago, which showed that the, the Jewish treachery in, in profiteering and speculation in, in the 18th century and, and, and the, you know, leading up to the Revolutionary War. And, and that's a role that you don't see at all in, in mainstream history books based at general, you know, written for general audiences. Well, I don't think there's any mainstream history book printed in the last 50 years that portrays Jews in a negative light, even if it's truth, even if it would be um, a truthful charge or a truthful accusation or something for which mountains of evidence exist. If the Jews are cast in a negative or even neutral light, it's not going to appear. They own the publishing companies. Back to Gerb. It's something that I've been wanting to investigate, but in, in certain ancient countries in Europe, I've read, and I, this is Northern Europe, so I haven't seen it documented yet, but, but I've read in newer sources that aliens were not allowed to, to address the general population. And, and that would be a very good policy. I have heard things along those lines. You mean they weren't allowed to stand in the, the, the center of the village and make a speech and try and rouse the masses with propaganda? Well, 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 well right, but today through, through the media and, and all of their other outlets, aliens control the, the hearts and minds of the American people. And for that reason, America is just a Jewish tool. Right. We could simply say that America is far away with a big ocean separating us. What do we care about what they think, write, or say about us? That was fine as long as America's highly developed hate campaign against Germany kept within certain bounds. But when it infects even official circles rather than merely newspapers and radio stations, it becomes more serious. This campaign reached unbelievable heights after 10 November 1938. American public opinion, influenced by the Jews, is trying to interfere to an intolerable degree in German domestic politics. They think that they can use methods against Germany that are normally unheard of in relations between civilized nations. We know very well who the instigators and beneficiaries are. They are mostly Jews or people who are in their service and who are totally dependent on them. For example, it is not surprising that the New York press attacks Germany so strongly. Over two million Jews live in New York, and public and especially economic life there is entirely under their control. The German press 
so far, has generally responded to this filthy and despicable campaign of hatred only sporadically and in a restrained manner, only after official personages in the United States got involved did we think it necessary to say something. For example, the American Interior Secretary, Eeks, publicly declared on 19 December 1938 that no American could accept a medal from the hands of a brutal dictator that with the same hand robbed and tortured thousands of people, that saw a day when it committed no new crime against humanity as a day wasted. Put simply, this is not a style of speaking that is customary in relations between states. I mean, that's right. It's it's highly insulting. And, And you would think that if an official is speaking in such a tone, in such a manner, the president would ask for his resignation, but the president's probably the one who patted him on the back after having read the speech and told him to go ahead and make it. You know, his number about the number, his figure of the number of Jews in New York at that time is certainly no exaggeration. I have in front of me a gift from Mr. Gerald Mosley, the Jewish Communal Register of New York City in 1917-1918. And they boast that New York City is the heart of American Jewry. Here are gathered a million and a half Jews, one half of all Jews in this country. Imagine that, a million and a half Jews in New York in 1919. 1919. So what did the numbers hit? by the 1930s when Goebbels made this declaration. Well, he claimed two million, and, and that's, very, um, that's very possible. It could have been closer to three if we count all those who don't go to the synagogue and don't openly identify as Jews. Right. Right, well, well that's the thing. That's the Jewish communal register, and, and the real numbers probably are much higher, maybe not in New York City, but elsewhere and throughout the country. Because Jews only count synagogue goers and, and registrants as Jews. They, they don't. Most Jews are actually atheists. Right. In in 1928, and this again, I'd thank Gerald Mosley, a history of the Jews in the United States by Levenger. I think it's the United American Hebrew Congress. In 1928, they put their population in the U.S. as a whole at 4.2 million Jews. And the vast majority were Eastern Jews who had been in America less than 50 years, 3.5 million. And I'm assuming the lion's share of those Jews lived in New York City or the greater metro area, probably in New York and New Jersey. Well, well right. New Jersey's the... Um, well, we used to joke that it's the Garden State because there's a rose in bloom on every street. street. It's true. The the population in in northern New Jersey is very heavily Jewish now. And in Long Island and and lower New York State. Even in the Philadelphia, too, at the time, anyway. So, it's... um, that they have a tremendous and, and a tremendously lopsided um, proportion, you know, proportionately, they have a tremendously lopsided voice in politics. Right. And today we don't even have just the 
Secretary of the Interior or the Under Secretary of State making threatening, ridiculous remarks about other nations. We have Obama when referring to a solution for Iran saying all options are on the table, and when asked to clarify if that includes a nuclear strike, he reiterates all options remain on the table. So we have the President of the United States declaring that he won't shy away from potentially obliterating Iran with nuclear weapons, but the Iranians are unreasonable and they need to come to the negotiation table and capitulate. Well, he's not looking for them to come to the negotiation table so he can deal with them as one nation dealing with another nation in a respectable manner. He wants them there so they can sign over papers capitulating and handing away their nation. What well, well, the real the real declaration of war against National Socialist Germany? What was made by Samuel Antemeyer in 1932? Right. Everything else after that was just formality. I'm just seeing some parallels between the propaganda campaign against Germany and the campaign against Iran. Well, well, right. It's it's basically we had the same propaganda campaign against Iraq. Uh, I mean, you had the little Arab girl on on television in in Congress testifying that the Iraqis were taking babies out of incubators in Kuwaiti hospitals and throwing them out the window or or whatever she was testifying, and and they, it all turned out to be lies later on. It was all lies. And we found out, too, that I think it was Madeleine Albright, she um, approved, she praised and lauded the news that an Iraqi infant formula factory, mistaken, quote-unquote mistaken, sure, as a chemical weapons production plant had been struck, and they estimated that the malnutrition that resulted cost several hundred thousand Iraqi toddlers, babies, and um, unborn children their lives, and it caused major problems for Iraqi women who were pregnant or nursing. And Madeleine Albright said that that was the price the Iraqis had to pay for supporting Saddam Hussein. Hmm. Well, well, that's it. But, and, 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 our world and, is and, run and, by butchers and monsters. Well, once and again, a clear violation of democratic principles. Well, our society, the entire world, is basically run by butchers, monsters, and power mongers, and they're liars, too, so when they're done butchering and chopping people to bits and destroying sovereign nations and annexing and pillaging, they do a whitewash. They run cover for each other. History's well, basically well, you know, Satan, Satan stood on the mountain and he told Christ, all of these kingdoms of the world belong to me, and, and I will give the rules over them. I will give the rule over them to whomever I wish. But the problem with that... Regardless of what you want to think about Satan, about the religious aspect, the problem is that Christians still don't understand it. They've been hearing it for 2,000 years, and they just don't get it. They think that there are Christian countries, or if we elect this politician, he's going to lead the charge, he's a moral crusader. Satan rules the world. Right. Period. End of discussion. Satan rules the world. Deal with it. Your pastor That's can't how America was established. America was established as a rebellion from Satan's world rule in Europe, but it wasn't long. It was only about 70 years before Satan got his clutches on America. And when I say Satan, I mean the international Jew. Right. And, and has run it ever since. 
and there's no politician that can change it. Ron Paul's not going to lead the charge. We can't vote our way out because Satan rules the world, period. If, if a Christian reads the New Testament that, that he claims to be a follower of, you know, a Christ, if he reads the New Testament and looks at the world and sees who the Jews are deriding, the Christian should know immediately that the Jews are lying. That the, the, the person the Jews are deriding are the person who is doing the right thing and standing against the Jews. Right. If, if the Jews are praising you, then God have mercy on you because you're, you're, you're against God. Well, well, right, but that, that's the sad, that, that's the major disconnect amongst Christians, is that Christians don't believe their New Testament. They don't believe their Bible. It's that simple. All right. Back to Goebbels. The American Undersecretary of State, Wells, responded to German protests by saying that Ick's statements represented the opinion of the overwhelming majority of the American public. One does not know what to say. What does he mean? Was the American president ever personally attacked in the German press or America's leading men slandered? We have been very restrained, even though we certainly had every reason to discuss this or that matter of American domestic policy. Such things are not our concern. American statesmen, not us, determine American domestic policy. We are concerned only with Germany's affairs. We, ha we also have no reason or intention of smuggling German political ideas into America. The very opposite. Since the methods that we use are purely German, they are only valid in Germany. But we do believe that just as we respect the internal affairs of other countries and avoid polemics against them, they should treat us in the same way. One cannot say that that is true of the United States of North America at present. Nearly the whole press, radio, and film industry support the worldwide campaign against Germany. And yes, Goebbels did write the United States of North America. <laughs> Senator Pittman put the matter bluntly on 22nd December 1938, quote, the American people do not like Germany's government, end quote. We happen to think that the American people have nothing to do with the matter. If they do not like Germany, it is because of the hate campaign. This campaign is conducted by certain international scoundrels who lack conscience and scruples. They are, both, they are doing it both for foreign and all too transparent domestic reasons. The Lima Conference is behind the anti-German campaign. North America hopes to encourage South American hostility against Germany and really against Europe as a whole. They do not like German competition in the South American market. The enormous North American armaments industry is also calling up images of a coming war against the totalitarian governments for business reasons. We have no intention of answering the criticisms that the American Jewish press raises against Germany by looking at America's domestic affairs. It is enough to observe that although Germany is the poorest country in the world in terms of foreign currency reserves and raw materials, it has not only abolished unemployment, but has a labor shortage. North America, meanwhile, has between 11 and 12 million unemployed, even though it is rich in foreign currency reserves and raw materials. Most of the American press ignores this situation. It cannot deny it, of course. 
It claims that German success is contemptible since it used methods of hate and contempt. This is entirely backward. The 7 million Germans who got jobs after National Socialism took power in Germany are not interested in the methods that gave them jobs. It reminds one of the familiar joke. Two workers are half-heartedly trying to remove a paving stone. A passerby watches for a while, then grabs a pickaxe and yanks the stone out. One worker says to the other, well, sure, if you use force. The American press uses the same argument. It cannot deny National Socialism's successes. It can only say, well, sure, if you use force. It thinks the German people had to make too great a sacrifice for these successes. And the, the real issue is that the German people had cast off the yoke of Jewish oppression. They weren't hmm. willing to be brutalized and pillaged anymore, and they have their culture contaminated and corrupted. Where it seems the American people are clamoring they're in the streets screaming for more contamination and corruption. They're sopping it up like a dog eating its own vomit. No doubt. The German people see things differently. It knows that certain restrictions in some areas were necessary for national reconstruction. The American public is practically drowning in wealth, prosperity, foreign currency, gold bars, and raw materials, it can hardly imagine how an intelligent, hardworking, and courageous people can get along without all those advantages. And incidentally, the FDR was using incredible force for his Jew deal, I'm sorry, New Deal, gold confiscation, the 1934 National Firearms Act, the Wagner Labor Act, which resulted in the formation of the National Labor Relations Board, which the Supreme Court ruled unconstitutional. He then threatened the Pacta Court with more judges and force others to retire. I think he wanted to pack it with up to six more judges, but he said he could do up to nine if he so chose. And then they finally declared most of his crucial legislation constitutional. You know, I think we've touched on that, the switch in time that saved the nine. So FDR, under the pretense of being a democratic, popularly elected leader, he was ruling by decree and tyrannizing the nation. And he's one who cast stones at other leaders and other nations and call them tyrants and dictators for using forceful methods. FDR was basically ruling this country with a strong hand, an iron fist. Well, well, yes, he was. He was a dictator. There's no doubt. He ruled by decree from on yes, high. Yes, he did. Back to Goebbels. However that may be, future developments concern us. No one but Germany has the right to judge Germany's domestic affairs. No one has the right to turn one people against another, to incite discord and promote ignorance that leads to international crises. Mr. Eden, the ambassador of international world democracy, found the right audience a few weeks ago in New York when he attacked National Socialism. The most prominent representatives of American international industry, economics, and finance were gathered. Mr. Eden would have done better to tell the 11 or 12 million unemployed where they could find jobs. The answer probably would have been Germany. <laughs> in, in fact, as an aside, in the 20s and 30s in the United States, almost 30% of all Italians who had immigrated to the United States in recent decades returned to Italy. You know, after Mussolini came to power, a huge number of Italian Americans who had been born in Italy but moved 
to the United States return to Italy. And similar things happened in Germany, too. A large number of recent German immigrants to the United States in the late 20s and early 30s, they went back to Germany as soon as Hitler came to power. But we don't hear about that. All we hear is the Jews had to flee for their lives. People got out while they could. They saw the writing on the wall. We don't hear about the people who came to America because they've been told the streets were paved with gold. They found that the only gold was sitting in vaults owned by Jews, and they wanted to return back to their homeland. Well, that's because not only is history written from a Jewish perspective what when it comes to general events, but history is written with, with Jews at the center of it. That, that the only thing that matters in history the last couple of hundred years is what happens to Jews. So basically it's Judeo-centric history. Right, exactly. It's a Judeo-centric history. How many people died in the um, Second World War? Maybe 50, 60, 70 million. 70 million? 60 million? And we only hear about 5 million Jews, 5 million Jews, 6 million Jews, whatever the number is. How many Hungarians died in the Second World War? Or the aftermath when the Soviets occupied their country. How many Englishmen died in the Second World War? How many Irishmen died? How, how many Greeks died? Who knows? Who knows? Could, could you um, name me a German girl who wrote a diary about suffering under Soviet occupation in Leipzig or Dresden or any of the territories in eastern Germany that fell under Soviet, the Soviet sphere? But everyone knows Anne Frank. Well, the Jews produced the media, so they produced Jewish media. All right. Continuing with Goebbels. He seems to have realized that his hate triad, I'm sorry, tirad, might have found a less friendly reception here than it did from the audience to which he spoke. Jewry applauds whenever Germany is attacked. Jewry hates National Socialism for reasons that do not need to be mentioned. And I think we've already mentioned all those reasons, though, incidentally. Well, well, right, because because National Socialism had made Germany independent from world Jewry. And that was unacceptable to world Jewry. If Al Capone says pay protection money and for 10 years you pay and then one year you decide you're no longer paying, well, he can't tolerate that. No, he's going to burn your business down. Because if you don't, you see, if you don't pay protection money and the shopkeeper down the street sees that, well, well, he's not going to pay his protection money. And to a snowball, Al Capone has no, no more racket. The racket's gone. Right. And it, only, it only takes one nation. If one nation throws the Jews out and they experience a boom, a period of prosperity without precedent, and nothing happens to them, they're not slapped back into their place and the chains aren't put back on, other nations are going to follow. Poland, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. And pretty soon the Jews will be kicked out of Europe. But that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And the average American was so damned stupid that he could sit and watch the 1936 Olympics in newsreel after newsreel after newsreel and, and see these happy, prosperous German people and, and these prosperous, prosperous German industries, this prosperous German economy, and not... What, wonder why Germany was prospering and, and the rest of the West 
was starving in a depression? Well, you know, the Austrian capitalist economists or the Jewish economists, they say that the National Socialist economy was, quote, a vampire economy, practicing Keynesian economics, borrowing against the future, engaged in debt spending, and that Hitler's regime would have imploded by the mid to late 40s if it hadn't been for the war. There's no yeah, proof of that. That's hyperbole. Yeah, yeah, that's where the Jews excel the most is creating pundits that that can that that can blow off a lot of steam and and, and basically manufacture a lot of garbage and and in in any situation. That's where they really excel. That's why they're so good at media. All right, Goebbels. Jewry is our enemy. It should be our enemy. It must be our enemy. The question is whether the American people want to make the Jews happy by engaging in fruitless conflict with the German Reich and the German people. That we do protest against. That is neither necessary nor helpful. We have nothing against the American people. We know and respect their political views and internal affairs, even if we might do things differently. We believe we have the right to expect the same of American public opinion about Germany. We also fail to see the benefits of such controversy. What good will it do America? Does it think it can starve Germany using the same methods as those of the World War? Every economic action has two sides. It affects not only its target, but also those on the side that use it. American cotton farmers sitting on piles of unsold cotton know this well. It is time to recommend peace and good sense. American public opinion is going the wrong way. It would benefit by returning to the old tested practices of international courtesy and good manners and by treating Germany in the way normal among civilized nations. We do not expect our appeal to have a great impact on American attitudes. Still, we think it is our duty to speak plainly. Given the influences of the Jews on parts of American public opinion, we again stress the short-sightedness and uselessness of such methods and ask the world this question. What does America really want? And, of course, the answer was given, and it was unfortunate what the answer wound up being. Well, well of course it was. America really wanted um, more bread and circuses, more, more easy Jewish money, and, and um, that they wanted to come out of the Depression, and, and the Jews offered them the, 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 the carrot. The carrot was war. Right. So they wanted plentiful, high-paying jobs. They wanted bread and circuses. They wanted new appliances, new cars, new houses, women in short skirts, and they wanted to go to talking movies. Which is another major discredit to the average American man who didn't see that there was no money in America for um, for 10 years to manufacture anything. And as soon as war was decided and, and Roosevelt could get us into the war, that there was plenty of money to gear up factories factories that got tanks and guns and planes and all kinds of equipment. So there, there was no money available for crucial infrastructure or for soup kitchens or 
there, were, there was no money available to return to the taxpayers from whom it had been looted. But as soon as war was looming, hundreds of billions of dollars emerged to build the largest factories and complexes the world had ever seen, entire power plants. Some of these factories had their own coal plants, their own oil-burning plants, power plants everywhere, infrastructure to um, accompany it, increases in rail yards, shipping yards, ports, dry docks. We were launching all these ships. I think it was one Liberty ship every 24 hours at the height of the program. We gave dozens, probably hundreds of destroyers to Britain. I think America spent, in today's dollars, several trillion just on the build-up to the Second World War. America. Uh, sufficient, sufficient intelligent Americans should have stopped and said, where is all this investment money coming from? Where was it three, four, five years ago when our people didn't have jobs and, and were, were basically starving? Right. And they say Germany was preparing for a war, but I don't see that. The Germans weren't even on a three-shift work day until 1943 when Goebbels did the Total War Declaration, the Total War Speech. They were working one shift in 1938, 39, 40, 41, and 42. Hitler thought that the war with Britain and France would soon be over and every everybody would be, you know, reasonably good friends again. You know, they're all European cousins of the same blood. He didn't see a need to be on a total war footing to wipe out Britain. He thought there would be peace with honor for both sides. I don't think they could conceive of the possibility that America and Britain, with the, the Jews dominating them so thoroughly, would fight 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They'd fight at another 100 years' war to wreck Europe. Yes, they would have. Right, but we're, we're told all the time Hitler was a warmonger. Well, you know, even his opponents have to concede he was very intelligent and capable. He went from basically a nobody in 1922 to a decade later, the ruler of one of the most powerful nations in the world. So he was certainly intelligent and gifted. If he were preparing for some global war of conquest, a war of aggression without precedent, Germany would have been on a full war footing, producing every tank they could possibly produce, producing a massive surface fleet to challenge the Royal Navy, producing enough aircraft to challenge the Soviets, the French, the British, and the Americans. The Soviets had, I think, a 10-to-1 aircraft advantage over Germany in, in the late 30s, and Germany barely closed that gap. I mean, I think it was still 5-to-1 when Operation Barbarossa began. And, of course, Germany never seriously challenged the Royal Navy. Yet we're to believe that Hitler was planning this war of aggression since the day he wrote Mein Kampf. <laughs> they, they didn't take any steps, you know, that would be commensurate with planning a war of aggression or consistent with it. None, none whatsoever. And that brings us to Did Hitler Want War? by Patrick J. Buchanan, originally posted in September of 2009. Would you like to begin? Yeah, I'll try to fight this. On September, On September 1st, 1st 1939, 70 years ago, the German army crossed the Polish frontier. On September 3rd, Britain declared war. Six years later, 50 million Christians and, and Jews had perished. Britain was broken and bankrupt. Germany a smoldering ruin. Europe had served as the site of the most murderous combat known to man, and civilians had suffered worse horrors than the soldiers. By May 1945, Red Army hordes occupied all the great capitals of Central Europe. 
Vienna, Prague, Budapest, Berlin. A hundred million Christians were under the heel of the most barbarous tyranny in history. The Bolshevik regime of the great of the greatest terrorist of them all. I'm sorry, Joseph Stalin. What could cause what what caused I'm sorry. What what cause could justify such sacrifice? Well, world Jewry was the only cause that could justify such sacrifices, right? That that's exactly what world Jewry wanted. Well, war for the Jews' harvest. Right. The, the German Polish War had come out of a quarrel over a town the size of Ocean City, Maryland, in summer. Danzig, ninety-five percent German. Had, had been severed from Germany at Versailles in violation of Woodrow Wilson's principle of self-determination. Even British leaders thought Danzig should be returned. Yet, you know, self-determination is what the Jews violate every time a nation elects a leader that the Jews don't like. And we saw, saw that with Kurt Waldheim and George Hader, and, and they are... Um, they're basically good examples because those men weren't threatening anything. They were simply elected democratically to the leadership of their nation, and they that they um I don't think they posed any threat at all to world Jewry. I mean, George Hader was a nationalist, but I don't think he posed any threat at all to world Jewry. I don't, you know, it's incredible that the Jews could get away with um, rallying Western nations to pressure Austria. Austria, of course, a democratically elected president with no clear plans for any treasure to, to, to resign like that. And, and the Jewish media whitewashed it, and, and the Americans basically accepted it. Time and again. It's, I mean, to me, that's... That's an incredible display of hypocrisy that nobody seems to pick up on. Maybe it's just me. Why did Warsaw not negotiate with Berlin, which was hinting at an offer of compensatory territory in Slovakia? Because the Poles had a war guarantee from Britain that should Germany attack Britain. Britain and her empire would come to Poland's rescue. Now, we've also learned recently uh, through the Mark Weber article that we covered a few months ago that Roosevelt was also promising Poland protection, right? Absolutely. Well, but that, was what? Tre- that, that was treacherous. He should have been impeached. He should have been impeached uh, for a hundred different causes. But why would Britain hand an unsolicited war guarantee to a junter of Polish colonels, giving them the power to drag Britain into a Second World War with the most powerful nation in Europe? Was Danzig worth a war? Unlike the seven million Hong Kongese whom the British surrendered to Beijing, who didn't want to go, the Danzigers were clamoring to return to Germany. Comes the response. The, 
the war guarantee was not about Danzig or even about Poland. It was about the moral and strategic imperative to stop Hitler. After he showed by tearing up the Munich Pact and Czechoslovakia with it that he was out to conquer the world, and this Nazi beast could not be allowed to do that. Well, well that's just a Jewish excuse, right? If true, a fair point, Americans, after all, were prepared to use atom bombs to keep the Red Army from the channel. But where is the evidence that Adolf Hitler, whose victims as of March 1939 were a fraction of General Pinochet's or Fidel Castro's, was out to conquer the world? After Munich in 1938, Czechoslovakia did indeed crumble and come apart. Yet, consider what became of its parts. You know, the bottom line is Czechoslovakia is an artificially constructed nation, right? It, it, it shouldn't stay together because it's multi-ethnic, and multi-ethnic states always crumble. Well, the Czechs and the Slovaks didn't want to be in a, in a combined union. They were forced into it like the Yugoslavs, the, the Slovenes, Croats, Serbs, and the Macedonians did not want to be in that union. And I, I don't include the Montenegrins in there because the Montenegrins are just Serbs living in a different territory. And, and they're all uh, violations of, of that, you know, they like to point to Woodrow Wilson's principle of self-determination. The creation of both of those nations, nations violated the principle. The Sudeten Germans were returned to German rule, this is after Czechoslovakia was, was dismantled, as they wished. Poland had annexed the tiny disputed region, region of Teschen, where thousands of Poles lived. Hungary's ancestral lands in the south of Slovakia had been returned to her. The Slovaks had their full independence guaranteed by Germany. As for the Czechs, they came to Berlin for the same deal as the Slovaks, but Hitler insisted they accept a protectorate. Now, one may despise what, what was done, but how did this partition of Czechoslovakia manifest a Hitlerian drive for world conquest? Comes the reply. If Britain had not given the war guarantee gone to war, after Czechoslovakia would have come Poland's turn, then Russia's, then France's, then Britain's, then the United States. We would all be speaking German now. Typical Jewish propaganda. Really? Founded on nothing, right? Instead, we're facing the real risk of speaking of bastardized Spanish, Abonics, Jive, and in Europe they'll be speaking Arabic. Well, well isn't that all basically Yiddish? A, a, um, a Jewish language which, which has absorbed elements of every language where the Jews have been, right? It's, a, it's a, an allegory. But if Hitler was out to conquer the world, Britain, Africa, the Middle East, the United States, Canada, South America... India, Asia, Australia. Why, why did he spend three years building that hugely expensive Siegfried line to protect Germany from France? 
Why did he start the war with no surface fleet, no troop transport, and only 29 ocean-going submarines? How do you conquer the world with a Navy that can't get out of the Baltic Sea? If Hitler wanted the world, why did he not build strategic bombers instead of two-engine Dorniers and Henkels that could, that could not even reach Britain from Germany? Why did he let the British Army go with Dunkirk? Well, well Condit has, Jim Condit has a pretty complex conspiracy theory based on that, right? Why did he offer the British peace twice after Poland fell and again after France fell? Why, when Paris fell, did Hitler not demand the French fleet as the Allies demanded and got the Kaiser's fleet? Why did he not demand bases in French-controlled Syria to attack Suez? Why did he beg Benito Mussolini not to attack Greece? Because Hitler wanted to end the war in 1940 almost two years before the train began to roll into the camps. Hitler had never wanted war with Poland, but an alliance with Poland, such as he had, with Francisco Franco's Spain, Mussolini's Italy, Miklos Hordi's Hungary, and Father Joseph Tito's Slovakia. Indeed, why would he want war when in 1939 he was surrounded by allied, friendly or neutral neighbors, except for France. And he had written off Alsace, because reconquering Alsace meant war with France. And that meant war with Britain, whose empire he admired, and whom he had always sought as an ally. And, and, and that's true. Hitler even stated in my comp, he, he wrote off Alsace-Lorraine, and he wrote off the Chile. And he, he traded the Kirol for a continued um, good relationship with Italy and Mussolini. As of March of 1939, Hitler did not even have a border with Russia. How could he then invade Russia? Winston Churchill was right when he called it the unnecessary war. The war that may yet prove the mortal blow to our, our civilization. And indeed it has. Well, if you want to know who the real winner of the Second World War happens to be, let, let me ask you, did, did the French win? Did the British win? Look what happened. Within 20 years, the entire French colonial empire was gone, collapsed in ashes, and they were being flooded by former co colonial citizens. What about the British Empire? How did it fare? It, it didn't last much past 1955 or maybe 1960. So who, who won? Well, well, if you really want to look at all of the wars of our recent history, the Jews won World War II. The, the Jews won the First World War. The Jews won the French Revolution. The Jews won the American Civil War. Yet, yet, you know, in my recent research, I found a Jewish article that called the American Civil War the Second American Revolution because it gained freedom and emancipation for Jews and Negroes in America. The Jews won the War of 1812. The Jews won the Thirty Years' War. The Jews won the Crimean War. The, the Jews won the Opium War. Sassoon is the proof of that. 
The Jews won the Spanish-American War. The Jews won the Boer War. The Jews won the Korean War. The Jews won the Vietnamese War. The Jews have won every war, and they've never fought one of them. And, and that's the bottom line, and, and that can be fully established. I didn't expect those assertions to be a showstopper. Well, I, I can't challenge anything you're saying. And What could I say? Oh, you're lying. The Jews haven't won those wars. They weren't belligerents in any of those wars. And you're, you're taking a war between the, the Boers and the British, and you're bringing the Jews in that they had no role in that war. The Jews were actually clamoring for a British invasion because they wanted control of the diamond industry and the gold industry. Absolutely. Well, you know, a lot of the Boers weren't interested in mining for gold. They were farming. They wanted to farm and live in peace, raise their family. And one day they wake up and there's hundreds of squatters in their field mining for gold. I think that would offend most reasonable people, wouldn't it? Well, well, right. They just made the mistake of wanting to be peaceful farmers on some of the world's most mineral-rich soil. And, and of course, the, uh, the the Jews brought all the Negroes into South Africa so that they could use them as cheap labor and later conveniently use them as a, as a device by which to destroy Dutch society in South Africa. Absolutely. I mean, what more can really be said? I think we've placed these articles side by side. It's clear that Americans by and large, did not want war, but after a nearly decade-long propaganda campaign fanning the flames of hatred, they were whipped into a frenzy, and I'm sure that the Americans would have been okay at that point with marching through Germany and killing all the men and then raping and killing all the women and burning the country to the ground. And the Germans, not only did they not want war, they weren't preparing for a war. They weren't planning on starting a war of aggression. They'd undertaken no serious preparations for war, and what few preparations they had were primarily defensive in nature. Well, well Jewish treachery, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's a hard process to, to, to even attempt to scratch the surface in, in educating people in general concerning the, the Jewish hand in, in history the last 200 years. It, it really is. It, it, it's a daunting challenge, but it's a challenge that we have to continue to bear. All right. Do you have any um, other thoughts? Well, 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 no. One program we should do soon is, is on the America's First Committee and, and on the, um, the small voices that were crying out against the Roosevelt policy and, and, and the war. And how they were, and how those people were ostracized by the Jews, and how they were portrayed as right-wing extremists, and and um, very much the same game plan Jews used against patriots until this very day, and Americans continue to fall for it. All right. Well, I'm sorry. The echo and some of the technical problems. I, I, I don't think that the echo is is uh, anything that 
I have any control over. I've been, as this program's unfold, I've been going through all of my equipment over and over again, and I can't find out why there's, that there's an echo. I will be here um, next Friday, that way willing, with Acts Part 4, and, and we'll be here next Saturday. I don't know if you want to go back. And, we have a couple of segments left to our against Paul Badgers series. I don't know if you want to commence with them Saturday. or We might want to do something different, but I will see you here next Saturday. All right. Yahweh bless. Praise, Praise God. God. Thank you for listening. Thank you.